Hello and welcome to Country Stride, the podcast dedicated to the landscapes, people and heritage of Cumbria and the Lake District. I'm here on a slightly overcast, threatening to drizzle type of day, end of the summer holidays. And I'm in a place very dear to my heart, one of my absolute favourite spots in the Lake District. I'm at Aeroforce with author, illustrator and our guide for today's walk, Mark Richards. Hello, Mark. Oh, hello, Dave. Good, it's me. I love being in this setting. I love Oldswater. It's a marvellous valley. The whole area of Ooze Lakeland to me. And then people come and drive along this road heading up to Glenridding and Patterdale and so on and just love the thrill of the setting. It's one of these great valleys, isn't it? And I fell even more in love with it when we were compiling our Oldswater walking companion. Little bit of a plug there, but it's a, it's a great thing, and I really did love this. And exploring the woodlands around here, actually, as much as anything, one of my favourite walks starts here, goes up to Dalthwaite Head, and comes back via Dockeray. And yeah, what a, what a blend of beautiful landscapes that one is. But today, Mark, we're doing something we don't often do on Country Stride. We're actually adding a part two to the part one that came last time. We're continuing a narrative. And the narrative we're continuing, if you remember, all those days ago, we were out on sunny Latterig and we were talking about the early days of tourism. We were rewinding all the way back, those early days of the picturesque, the sublime, and those first visitors who were sitting there with Father Thomas West's Guide to the Lakes, going to all of these stations, those viewing stations. And what we're going to do today is zoom in on a very specific place, Era Force, and we're going to pick up the story, we're going to move it forward in time to the, I guess, the growth of the nouveau riche who start coming to the lakes and settling here, and talk about how this landscape, this pleasure ground landscape, develops. So we're going to kind of replicate that early pleasure ground journey today, wander very slowly up through what we now call the Arboretum to the force itself. We're going to cover a lot of ground. We're going to talk about that transition between the old big estates through to the new money that flows in from the mill towns. We're going to talk about some of the politics in this area. I'm sure we'll talk about some of the great trees that we're seeing, how they ended up coming to be here. Our guest today, Mark, who is our guest? Harvey Wilkinson, the Cultural Heritage Officer for the National Trust. I've had a bit of a chat to him already, so I know he knows his onions. Well, he follows just two after his colleague, Jamie Lund, so um, in very good company there. I can see him just over there, just at the bottom of Arabic, where it starts its descent into the lake. So let's go and meet Harvey and take our first steps on today's Country Stride. Well, I'm standing in a very treed landscape. I can look back, that is, to the east, and I can see Bleebury Knot on Place Fell. I can see across the meadow the Aeroforce Delta pasture that runs out to Ullswater. And, of course, the name Aerobeck itself refers to the gravel entry into the lake, a gravel stream. Anyway, today we're going to explore that wonderful world to the west of us now, up the Aerobeck Valley. And I'm doing it in the company of Harvey... It's great to have you with us. What is your background and what's drawn you into the sphere that you're in now? Well, I'm a, a curator. I've worked for National Trust for 10 years. Really, I have an overview of all our heritage assets in the Lake District. That's farm buildings, that's the historic houses, but also landscapes, and particularly designed landscapes, of which this is a really great example. Now, Harvey, what sort of things are we going to discover today? It's not a unique opportunity, but it's an opportunity here in the Lake District to retrace the steps of the 18th century or early 19th century tourist or traveller or the original owners of the site here, the Dukes of Norfolk, as they process into the designed landscape, the famous River Gorge of Aeroforce. Um, and when I say designed landscape in a setting like this, it's very, very powerful topography. What I'm really talking about is a network of paths 
and reveals and glades within the natural aspect of the scenery. That's no mean feat either, though, as you'll see as we go in. So we're going to take a little journey through the falls and try and tune ourselves into the atmosphere of the place and some of those intangible perceptual qualities that were apparent to the 18th century traveller. And still, we can still get them today. And I think that's part, in a way, the curatorial challenge of a place like this is how do you preserve atmosphere? in a famous place, place 250, 300, 350,000 visitors a year. Well, you've given us a bit of a feel for where we're going. It's drizzling a little bit, but it won't last for long because we'll be in the shelter of the trees and we'll make our first strides up into the Aeroforce Gorge. Here we are at the foot of the gorge. Lovely trees, very stately trees, coniferous, quite a range, the natural fields below. Our last podcast, we touched on Thomas West and uh, his guide, which uh, drew lots of people to come to the Lake District. They stayed and they started buying properties. Now, that was an interesting transformation in habit. Can you tell us a little bit about that, Harvey? Yeah, well, this is a really important part of that story, Aeroforce. It's very much part of the same impulse that any landscape subject to tourism changes. Physical changes happen. So as you say, tourists started to come and then people started to buy land and build houses, as Wordsworth said, for the sake of the scenery. He makes that distinction. The first house built for the sake of the scenery was Belle Isle, 1772, on Windermere. That triggers the whole thing. The landscape starts to change under that tourist gaze and tourist pressure. Windermere, Grasmere, Keswick, Derwentwater, and this side of Ullswater, certainly. Ultimately, what you get by about 1860 is some of these lakes are almost completely surrounded by villas and their parks and gardens and pleasure grounds and estates. And it forms today, in a sense, an entire landscape character area all the way around the lakes. And it's one of the things that's really enshrined in that World Heritage Site description. This, in a sense, is the exception that proves the rule of the Lake District Merchant Villa and shines a light not just into the history of tourism, but also back into the deeper history of the Lake District. This is a baronial estate that goes back into antiquity. It belonged to the Dukes of Norfolk. Now, the 11th Duke of Norfolk, Charles Howard, whose residence was at Greystoke, developed this into a fashionable recreational estate. He's an interesting character because the primary Howard seat is in Arundel in Sussex, but he chose, because he was brought up here, to base himself in the Romantic North, it's quite a clear decision, and that seems to have triggered the development of this estate. It's a classic Lake District deer park. It has its park pale or boundary around it. You can still see that from satellite, still quite clear. So it was well stocked with deer. Red deer, this is. Yeah, I would think so. Harriet Martineau, the great writer in the mid-19th century, remarks on the deer here as moving across the fells like brown shadows of clouds. So you think of the density of deer stock in here, and what's a relatively compact estate. Deer stalking and shooting would have been part of the picture, but it's certainly a social place. This is where the Duke, I think, was coming for what was described at the time as autumn Saturnalia. He liked to drink, did the 11th Duke of Norfolk, we know that, and had parties. So it's part of the, the social routine of the aristocracy, which is kind of based around hunting, but didn't necessarily include it all the time. The Duke's first impulse is to build a Gothic Revival hunting lodge to trigger the designed landscape project. He then punches into it with footpaths, glades and clearings to create a pleasure ground. Lyle's Tower is a fascinating building. It's a relatively small hunting lodge in the Gothic Revival style, which sits just outside uh, the Aeroforce part of the, the landscape on the fell side. This is in the, in the broader fell side of Galborough. It sort of sits centrally to Galborough. It hunkers down, quite low down, uh, in that landscape. It's really important for this estate. It anchors the state. Of course, it's still very much in private hands. It's not a public building because it's part of that early Gothic revival. It's a bit improvised. So actually, it's a three-sided Gothic revival apron wrapped around a more conventional building. Almost a facade, if you put it that way. When viewed from the lake from a longer distance, it's, it's more coherent, but it's crenellated, it's castellated at the top, and historically was thickly covered in ivy. Lyle's Tower, like a lot of these smaller Gothic Revival structures, is designed to have a landscape-wide impact. So if you look at that, when that appeared in 1780 or 1770, it would have knocked the whole landscape into a different orbit. 
It says this is a baronial landscape. And actually Wordsworth and Coleridge on their introductory walk into the lakes in 1799 saw it in the best way possible. From a distance, completely shrouded in mist, they say the mist peels away, revealing this ghostly castle with its reflection in the water. So it, it certainly gives you that sense of the Gothic with a capital G. And of course there's a link with one of Wordsworth's famous poems. Yeah, there's a couple of poems strongly associated with Galborough and Glen Coyne which are connected. One is Wordsworth's famous I Wandered Lonely as a Cloud, you know, the Daffodils poem. But none of there's a later one, which is an imaginary tale of a knight who disturbs his betrothed as she's sleepwalking over Aeroforce. He disturbs her and she falls into the chasm and is killed and becomes a hermit afterwards. Again, a very gothic tale. But it gives us a little window into what the social life of Lyle's Tower would have been like, because Wordsworth says that the inspiration for the story was given to him by his friend, the painter John Glover, who was one of the great Oldswater painters. Go online and see if you can find a John Glover painting of, of Oldswater. But he's at one of the parties that the Duke of Norfolk is throwing. You can imagine what that was like. And he said one of the ladies of the parties, she sleepwalks into the middle of the hall, in the middle of the night, suddenly wakes up and her screams raise the whole household. And that little story then triggers this one. So it gives us a window into, yes, this is hunting, but this is a social, these are dinner parties. It's part of that autumn social scene. And as you said, Aeroforce becomes famous. It becomes one of those names that people have heard. It's included in a lot of the early guides, and once you're on that itinerary, it sticks. Harvey, you mentioned about these industrialists, and these really intrigue me. Uh, I know uh, Beatrix Potter's grandfather was an industrialist. Who are these people, and what were they seeking to achieve here? It's an interesting question. A lot of our visitors here today, we know, are flocking here on holiday from the industrial conurbations of Manchester, Liverpool and Leeds. Their ancestors were working for the mill owners. So in a sense, it's the epicentre industrial capitalism in the world, Manchester, Liverpool and Leeds, created vast amounts of wealth. And if you think of the Lake District, is right on the doorstep with the fashion for picturesque scenery, the newly revalued English scenery. This isn't the Grand Tour, this is a local. People did what villa builders do. And you think of the word villa, you know, think of a Roman villa. It's just the same. It means the country residence of a city dweller. It's suburban. Again, distinct from the feudal aristocracy who follow a different calendar. They don't come on their summer holidays. They follow the London season, the hunting season as we've got here, the people building villas here, by the time the railway comes, certainly are coming for the weekends or the summer holidays. This is about the consumption of leisure. These are the nouveau riche. A 19th century word for them were the merchant princes of northern England, a good example of the Marshall family. Now, they have two huge villas on Allswater, Holsteads and Patterdale at the other end. Actually, John Marshall was friends with Wordsworth through Wordsworth's sister, and Wordsworth helped guide John Marshall's acquisitions a little bit, because he was sympathetic to Wordsworth's vision for landscape, if you like. Those two villas belong to a single family who are making their money in flax. You think, like this, look at this beautiful, quiet, rustling leaves. The money came from the biggest single room in the world, which was the Temple Mills in Leeds. If you see a picture of it, it's terrifying. It's huge. Thousands of people toiling away, spinning flax. The surplus money is building holsteads these beautiful, elegant houses for the sake of the scenery, again, as, as Wordsworth put it. Wordsworth writes about the coming of tourism in his writings. Wordsworth is such an astute observer of that, and of course he grows up with the coming of this merchant villa landscape. He's schooled in Windermere at Hawkset. He calls himself the boy of Winandermere, and he sees these villas appearing. And he, he says something quite astute. I use this phrase a lot in trying to understand these landscapes. And he's referring back to around the year of his birth, all the time in his Guide to the Lakes. He says the Lake District was without the signs of ancient grandeur. And that seems an odd thing to say, because we look around this place, it seems grand, it seems ancient. He's describing something missing, which is not missing for the rest of the country. And it tells us a bit about what happens when tourism comes to the lakes, but also the reason why people weren't coming to the lakes in the early 18th century. And what he means specifically is it lacks the built edifices of the feudal aristocracy. That's what we call today the stately homes, the monasteries and then the ruined monasteries and the castles and then the ruined castles. Now these things, the lake just doesn't have them because the feudal aristocracy have all built their houses in the fertile plains of the Eden Valley and around the lake to stick where the fat land is. They stick their tenants and their serfs and their monastic workers into the massive to try and eke a living out up here. But they don't build, by and large, in there. If you think of a tourist of, say, 1720, 
You're not looking for scenery, you're looking for the great houses, the castles, the antiquities, the psychological building blocks of nation-state from the mindset of, say, 1720. There's nothing here worth looking at. That situation then gets suddenly flipped by the picturesque movement that you're talking about. A landscape which is at once empty of the signs of ancient grandeur suddenly is full of interest for those people. When the villa builders start to build here, of course, there is no controlling architectural presence. There's no great gentry house, by and large, at the head of all these valleys surrounding the place. So it means that these, these urban people can reimagine the landscape for themselves. A good example is Pocklington's Island, a villa built on the principal island of Dowmwater. As words were said in the guide, the islands were the first places to be seized upon and defaced by the intrusion. So it's quite negative about that. But actually, Pocklington's Island is a, a kind of a weak imitation of the 5th Baron Byron's house at Newstead. Newstead. But Yeah, so th there's no real baron to worry about. Again, this is the exception because these guys are real barons. Although Lyle's Tower in its Gothic revival style still is a pastiche in a way of some imagined uh, architectural past here in the lakes. I'm intrigued. Who were these nouveaux buying their land from and how easy was it? It wasn't as easy as it might sound. By that time, you've got a very complicated landscape. You've got the commons above. Now, that's owned by the feudal aristocracy, the Howards and the Lowthers. They own the land, but they're, they're commons by that point. And in a sense, land ownership had become quite fragmented in the Lake District, quite complicated. Over generations, land had changed hands and moved around. So to build a big estate here is no mean feat. And it's one of the reasons why a lot of the merchant villas in the Lake District are quite tight, they're quite small. They're not huge. They don't need to be because they're not depending on agriculture. They just need a view. I think the other complexity for builders here is by the 1810s, 1820s, this is a celebrated landscape. And if you get it wrong, like Joseph Pockington did, you end up in the papers. People start commenting, I don't like what you've done. Or Wordsworth said, it's an intrusion. That debate goes almost all the way back to that Thomas West period. Why are they doing that? Because private property in this country was paramount. There's no such thing as a national park. There's no such thing as a planning authority. And they're doing it because the place is already becoming what Wordsworth was describing, a sort of national property. And that's one of the reasons why this is a World Heritage Site, because it's where that rolling debate about the appropriateness of treatment of landscape kind of starts. And, and the villas are important because they're a trigger for that debate. They sit in the middle of it. You mentioned about this new money, new personnel who are coming into this landscape, making their changes. What was their relationship to the existing aristocracy? By and large, their relationship was not about the same concerns as the aristocracy. Of course, politicians came here. Vast army of clergy, Anglican clergy, came out here as well. But in a sense, that older landscape still existed. That's the landscape of power the landscape of connections and the big families. This is one of the big families. This is the Howards. Liberal, Whig by inclination. The Lonsdales, very close neighbours. Tories, Earl of Lonsdale, the richest man in Britain by and large, an oligarch almost by today's standards. And these people are struggling for political control of the county. The first Earl of Sussex here, he, when he died, he triggered the by-election, which is a really hotly contested seat for the MP of Carlisle and they were arrayed against the Lonsdales. So there's this power struggle going on. Of course, William Wordsworth's father was a land agent. That means political fixer. The first Earl of Lonsdale, Wordsworth ultimately becomes distributed stamps for the second Earl once his relationship with that family is repaired. And he also becomes, to some extent, a fixer for them too and has to redact some of his earlier political writing. So you can see someone like Wordsworth can't free himself from those old power structures because he's of the place. Whereas I certainly think the merchant landscape, they were connected socially, but their tentacles don't go that deep into the ground. They're in a caravan looking at the view to some extent. I briefly mentioned Beatrice Potter earlier on that, but I didn't follow up on it. Her grandfather was a miller. He was, and he was MP for Carlisle. His mills were in the great mill belt. He owned the biggest calico printing factory in the world, and that's where the Potter family fortune came from. Her father never worked. Her summer holidays were spent renting out villas in the Lake District. That's what often happened to villas. They were let out during the summers. Potter spent almost every summer, with a few exceptions, going off to Scotland in a long sequence of summer-long holidays which her father took her on, including Ray Castle, National Trust property, where she met Canon Rawnsley, who encouraged her to, to write her famous books. And that story goes on. The interesting thing about Beatrix Potter in relation to the villa landscape is her first 
exposure to the Lake District is through the lens of the villa. She sees it through the villas her father is renting. She then buys a holiday cottage, which is Hilltop. It's not a house, it's a holiday cottage. But Potter, in a way, makes that transition from outsider to insider through farming. And she's maybe one of those exceptions in that merchant villa landscape where she comes in through that route. But in a way, through hard work and through, say, a marriage to a local land agent, she manages through a single lifetime to work her way in, in a sense, to becoming a... Not farmer's the wrong word, really. She's a major estate owner in the Lake District. That's how she ends up. If you think of the Lake District as a theatre, she comes out of the audience and steps into the, the stage. Her mother, people don't often talk about her mother, she died very, I think she was 93 when she died, and she held this vast fortune. And Beatrix installed her in a villa across the lake and would have dinner with her every Sunday. And I think the relationship was a little tense. She was waiting for the old lady to die and release this humongous <laughs> volcano of money that she was sat on. Just as Potter was acquiring places like Tarn House, she was aware that the money was potentially about to be released and she'd appealed to her mother for some money. She wasn't forthcoming until she died. But certainly the mill money basically underpinned her whole life and creativity and helped her set up in that sense. Obviously, later farm acquisitions come through the revenue from the little books as well. Yeah, absolutely. Which have underpinned the National Trust ever since. That's a fascinating backdrop to what we are about to embark on. In fact, we'll begin as the Georgian visitor would have been enthralled by the wander up the gorge. We'll do that now. Well, we've entered the glade. We've come into the natural amphitheatre at the beginning of the journey. Families here in abundance. The group of Duke of Edinburgh Award young folk come through. This is a place of happy, joyous engagement in the landscape. And I've actually come through between two yew trees. Now, I understand one's Irish, one's English. I'm intrigued to know what that refers to. Well, I wish I knew, but it's an interesting question. If there was just one, it might be a mistake. But apparently, a lot of the significant entrances to the estate, there's also an English and an Irish U, and that starts to look like a political message, maybe. <laughs> uh, we know that Howard's named one of their Gothic Revival buildings out in the Eden Valley, Bunkers Hill, which one writer thinks is a bit of a snipe at the Tories and their handling of the American War of Independence. So politics and landscape aren't that far apart uh, around here. <laughs> this glade is the point where they... Georgian tourists would begin their journey. Can you give us a little bit of a lead-in yourself? Yeah, sure. This is what makes this a designed landscape, because your approach is being managed. And we talked about those ideas of the picturesque and the sublime, and maybe later ideas of a romantic landscape like this. You are on a managed journey. And in a sense, because of the strong topography here, the modern visitor here is getting something very close to that experience. We'll come on to some of the practicalities of that later on. So through historic guides, we actually know how that journey started because we've got the guidebooks. And they said in those days, presumably while His Grace the Duke wasn't here uh, for his uh, autumn shooting season, you could obtain a guide from the lodge and he or she would take you up to the falls. And we know from the early OS record there were finger posts here. So all this is private, don't forget, this is private land. It's not a national park. People were permitted to progress through this uh, landscape. And this is the beginning of it. This is an open glade. This is designed to set you up. You can hear the water, but you can't see it. You've had a glimpse of it so far. Part of the journey we're going to take now will be increasing noise of water and these little reveals that start to build the anticipation of the journey. I've come amongst the trees now, the first gracious, stately, neck-bending trees, because you bend your neck up and look at them and you think, wow, this is the monkey puzzle and this pine here. This is a marker in the ground, a stone marker, HH 1846. Can you tell me what that is and can you describe what this was originally like and what it became? This date mark is useful. It's a Howard family estate market. It's got 1846 written on it, and that's handy, because around about that time, wealthy families, certainly within the merchant villa landscape and elsewhere, started to collect exotic 
trees or collections. And this is called a pinetum. It's a collection of exotic trees brought in from all corners of the empire and grown here. And obviously some of them to great effect. Some of these trees aren't necessarily used to the Lake District climate uh, and have thrived. So this is a pinetum. It's ornamental. They come in in the Lake District, by and large, in the mid-19th century. They're quite fashionable. If you're around and about in the lakes, and you say going around Windermere or Dome and you see those very, very tall conifers sticking out of the tree line, they're probably saying to you, yes, there's a villa hidden in the woods somewhere around here. It's part of an expression of the breadth of empire. We controlled huge swathes of the planet. Of course, we're going to bring exotic trees back plant them here and see how they do. So this is very much part of the mid-19th century approach up to the falls. If we wind back to that Georgian period, the 1780s, our accounts of the age of the oaks, aged oaks and thorns, the whole thing would have felt more native in that sense. Although certainly the, the Dukes of Norfolk would have been planting beech, you know, beech hangers up on the fells, we know that. But this is very much part of the Victorian impulse in landscapes like this, and much repeated around the Lake District. It was very much the age of tree collecting. As part of empire, we explored, we looked for opportunities, we looked for productivity. The Duke of Buccleuch imported large trees into Britain in the 18th century, not in the 19th century. As a society, we were busy probing into the world to find out what is useful and what is ornamental. Because it's likely the masters bought these from a specialist nursery, as most of the other folks did in the Lake District. Can you give us a little bit of an overview of the uh, special trees that are here? I can see an oak tree, so what other things are there here? Well, we've got monkey puzzle trees. You can see the great foot of one of those monkey puzzle trees here. You can see those around in the Lake District, and often monkey puzzle trees weren't just planted by gentry, they were planted by farmers had them as well in the 19th century. So monkey puzzle trees are interesting. But actually what you're seeing here is exotic trees jostling a little bit with some of those older specimens. There's some old yews dotted around in here still. Right. Yeah, it's intriguing, isn't it? And then there's wonderful spruce here and pines and things. If you're into trees and you're into forestry, <laughs> you get the diversity here. We've got this date marker, 1846, but the National Trust, when it has these really important historic landscapes, we have them professionally surveyed. You know, we do a lot of work in researching the landscapes. And dangerous to take everything at face value because the Trust has actually had this landscape for 120 years. And that's as long as the Howards had the landscape in that modified form. So inevitably, you get muddled up with the landscape. And what do you do? As these trees age and fall down, do you keep planting them or do you stop? Now, actually, we know that a lot of these trees now are National Trust trees that go back 100 years and not the Howard ones, which have since fallen over. So we are kind of mixed up in our own photograph, which in landscape terms is kind of inevitable because you have to keep that continuity going. So that, of course, means the National Trust are using non-native species. Yeah, historically, that's, that's what they were doing. That explains why some of these trees aren't as old as, as you might think. We periodically lose them in storms and we get an opportunity to ring count them, and that's when you find out how old they are. <laughs> of course, some of them are very, very ancient, and the basic architecture of this landscape are what were called at the time the aged oaks of Galborough. That's the scaffolding, if you like, from which the whole thing is built in terms of trees. Fascinated little ramble up through the gorge there. We've got this sense of the mounting audio effect. We have these little glimpses that you can just tantalisingly get. But you're actually on a path which is cobbled in bits and looks a bit ragged now, but there again, it does get a lot of people on it. What was the state of it when it was first instituted? We can't quite see in detail that far back in time. What we do know is the route. So by and large, you know, we start with dotted lines on hand-drawn estate maps. The is the topography is strong, we can locate that. So we're confident a lot of these paths are in roughly the same place as they were. Looking at historic, more general historic references for landscapes like this, deliberate pleasure grounds in difficult topography, the footpaths up here would certainly be a bit rougher, a bit more informal. And we do know as well that a lot of attention was lavished on quite crafty stonework. So at other parts on the estate, say at Ucrag, there's some very fine revetments and stonework. Today, there's quite a substantial steps with handrails. Was it the same in the original days? We have a few windows into that. You know, we have engravings, which we can date, say, engravings of 1816. So we know that there were rickety wooden bridges and we know there were little rickety wooden handrails. A visitor of that Georgian period was scrambling down into those falls. 
The bridges cross at slightly different points than they do today. And of course, there are National Trust early 20th century stone bridges that the National Trust put in. And I think we'll talk a little bit later on about the modern gantry work that we put in. But yeah, it was more precarious. And I think the physical experience, again, we're going back to those sensations. The difficulty is how do you preserve those sensations safely with modern interventions, really. And now I believe you've got a couple of quotes that evoke the spirit of adventure that the early tourists would have experienced. A lot of tourists coming into a place like this would have started their journey with an engraving that they may have seen in a friend's uh, album of engravings or with an account or a guidebook. Because the visual imagination those days is very, very acute. They're not on smartphones all the time. They haven't used their imagination. But I've got a couple of quotes. I mean, these are really useful sources for me. As I mentioned before, you know, you can deal with the physicality of things like footpaths and what have you and get those right. But how did the place feel? What was the atmosphere? And there's some key words here. But this is Thomas de Quincey writing in his Recollections of the Lake Poets, 1834 uh, to 40. So he's looking back in time to a point when he's touring through here with Wordsworth. Not necessarily a tourist, but he's part of that circle. And he's on his way through in, in the late evening. It's getting dark. He says, Through the most romantic of parks, then belonging to the Duke of Norfolk, this Galborough Park, we saw alternately for four miles the most grotesque and the most awful spectacles abbey windows and moorish temples of the Hindus, all fantastic, all as unreal and shadowy as the moonlight that created them. I don't think he could do much better than that. It's intensely atmospheric. And what does he mean by abbey windows? He's quoting Wordsworth's Peter Bell, and he's talking about the gothic tracery of the oak trees and the branches as they appear into the moon, almost forming a kind of organic cathedral, if you like, that strange intermixture of the Gothic Revival and that Oriental view of that period almost jumbled up together, both strange, both alien. The key word here is Gothic and Romantic. And that word Romantic, people say, well, what does Romantic mean? And we talk about the new Romantics and we have Romantic affairs. Romantic here, in a sense, in the language of the 1830s, would have meant the kind of character you find in there, dark little twists and turns, places to stop and think, places to be melancholy, pleasantly sad, dark and twisting and revealing. You can contrast that with the broader view you can see from here which is what would have been called at the time, say 1830, as grand. It's grand, it's epic, so you have this romantic, inward looking and then this grand landscape. And you have a second passage, I believe? Yeah, this is a bit longer. This is John Stuart Mill, walking tour of Yorkshire and the Lake District, 1831. So it's just that period I'm talking about. Here, in the midst of the indigenous woods which still survive about Ull's water, although unhappily extinct in the neighbourhood of other lakes, the Duke of Norfolk has a hunting box close upon the lake called Lyle's Tower, built in the style of the gateway of an ancient castle, adapted with rare felicity to harmonise with the surrounding scene. Close to this place, the brook already mentioned forms not the highest or fullest, but the prettiest waterfall in the country, the spot itself and the narrow gill both above and below it are so hidden by fine trees that you might seek along it for a long way without finding it. And the waterfall, it's called Airy Force, is one of the spots where one would go on a hot summer's day to conceal oneself from the sun and refresh oneself by the sight of water and rocks shut up in a leafy nook and the feeling of cool, moist air. So what was the driver for the tourists, the Victorian tourists, let's say, to get right into the bosom of the mountain, to hear the sound, to see the awe and wonder? I suppose it's simple. I suppose the coming of modernity is seeking experience. You know, and, and in a way, some of that does go back quite powerfully into the Romantic movement. Personal experience changes who we are. And that very, very simple idea then makes people go out and seek experiences because that modifies their existence. And that's the difference between earlier phases where one simply just looks passively. The picturesque is about bridging either imaginatively or physically the gulf between you and the object you're looking at. Experience becomes developmental. It's innate to us now. Of course, we assume that's the case. But that's an idea that was either invented or discovered by the romantics. So that's why, you know, your Victorian tourist is trying to get close to these sensations. People still seek the sensation today. I think the other side of this is slightly different. It's about fame. That modern word, celebrity. It's the famous thing. It's got a famous name, and people want to come and see famous things. So there's two forces. One is the force of sublime and experience, but a more modern force of simple fame and celebrity, which drives visitors into certain famous places like Tarn House, Aeroforce. It's one of those celebrity objects of the Lake District. 
Oh, we've been teasing ourselves by not quite making it, but I think it's about time we got the audio effect full on, full mic of the falls. We've come up to uh, what I would describe as the money shop. We've got a platform here before you get right down, we come down some slight steps and uh, in front of us, although it's not incredibly stupendous falls, it's still very tangible and very audible. Harvey, can you describe this setting and something about it? Well, yeah, this is the famous waterfall and seeing it in a relatively mild mode, this in full spate, it's like a wild animal, this waterfall, and actually fills a lot of that gorge that you can see and leaps right across to the bridge. So you're almost touching the spray from the falls. So we're looking down into the ravine at the moment. We're also looking down and up at the two bridges of the falls installed in the early uh, 20th century by the National Trust, dedicated to the Spring Rice family. They were a notable diplomats, but also deeply involved in the early conservation work in the Lake District in the 1910s and 20s. Both built of stone, one using vertical stones in an arch form, and one more conventional uh, horizontal stonework. The dual nature of the bridge is interesting in itself, because you think about the famous St. Gotthard bridges of the Grand Tour, those two mirrored bridges where you can look up at people on the other bridge and you can imagine yourself up there so i think there's there's something about the role of people in landscapes like this within that romantic idea of seeing lone figures on bridges it's interesting you can associate yourself with that person looking down and we're looking up we're both enjoying the space in between that's one of the things the two bridges facilitate and you can then anticipate all oh, right i'm now going to walk up to the next bridge and be that person i think in landscapes like this people do have a visual role as well as a, a role in just soaking up the scenery. And of course, everyone's taking photographs, everyone's taking selfies. As soon as photography came along, 1850s, 1860s, it becomes a classic photographic subject. And we can track it through time and history with those photographs. My earliest photograph is about 1860, where a gentleman stood over, not on the visitor route as it is now, but right up in the gorge, wow. wearing a, a two-foot-high stovepipe hat with a knobbly stick, his back turned in the full spray of the falls. So this is where we can also look at how the gantries and things were made because we've got it in the photo record because there's so many people here taking photographs. He must have gone up on a ladder and they took the ladder out to do it because there's no way somebody with that sort of hat and that kind of costume could have gone up that slope. He did it for the photo like people do now. People get hurt, don't they, for the YouTube moment. But you can see with the, the agency that the Norfolks would have had, it's quite a committing trip to get down into you. It's a real journey. We've come upon the Gantry Way, which is on the north bank, or uh, if you were coming up the Beck, it's on the right-hand side of the valley on the Gowborough Park side of the valley. And we've come onto this gantryway, this metalwork structure. Uh, it's about 50 metres long. I believe, Harvey, you've been involved with the project. Yeah, like a lot of the work we do at the National Trust, we try to aim for minimum intervention. You know, we try and be as sensitive as we can because we're putting a big metal gantryway in here. We have to think about it very carefully. Certain points of the path network here have just given away and slipped down into the ravine. Again, we're slightly reluctant in the sense to work in stone. We're certainly not going to work in concrete in a place like this. We can't get helicopters in to this ravine, so what do we do? We're faced with a dilemma that's been repeated in other parts of the Lake District as well, is how do you keep this access going for people safely, but at the same time preserve that sense of awful spectacle? to coin that phrase for people as they visit in the falls. So we're working, as, as others are doing now, in steel. Steel Gantry Works is a big project to install two lengths of steel gantry way to keep the access going into this gorge. We can no longer maintain some of the revetted earth embankments that were being held up by bits of timber. What you're doing here has a historical precedent. Oh, yeah, in the 19th century, you no know, people could work iron. 
And it was often a solution for these precipitous glens. Nunnery walks is a good example, not visited today. Um, we know there were also very complex wooden gantry ways uh, that were put up in places like Stanley Gill, no longer there now. But yeah, iron, iron handrails, iron walkways, more rickety than we would build today, certainly, were part of the palette of materials available in the 19th century uh, to people working in landscapes like this. We deliberately stuck to the historic line of the paths as far as we knew. So we're not trying to do anything new here. We're trying to just facilitate what's there already. But we have allowed ourselves, in a sense, a little bit of a luxury here where we're stood on a slightly wider viewing platform that looks down into, I think it's the most beautiful part of the falls, really. It's a kind of midpoint where the river starts to calm and pool. You have this very dark, peaty water being churned up in this beautiful, shady, uh, green glen. So it just allows us to pause. One of the things you can do with steel, we're working here with steel, is you can produce lovely, sweeping curves. But deliberately here, we did this in a compound of straights. It's all straight lines and angles, because that's a bit closer to the way you would have historically worked with iron, and certainly with wood. We pulled a good team together, local builders, local designers, Paul Lewis, who was our consulting engineer and designer on this project. It's a very, very difficult technical challenge working in a ravine like this. I like the dark tone of it. Is that purposeful? Again, with all these things, the colour's tricky in a site like this. It's not black. You know, historically, ironwork would have been painted black. This, actually, the colour, I quite deliberately took on a colour that's an aggregate colour of black with rusty bits in it. So it's just black knocked back a little bit to be a very, very, very dark grey. But again, we took some considerable time uh, thinking about the paint finish. Similarly, if you look between your feet, we've kept this slightly open tread feel that lets you just feel a little bit of that drop beneath you, just preserving a wee bit of anticipation. These sorts of structures are issues elsewhere, and you've been involved with the Bowderstone. Yeah, I worked on the new Bowderstone ladder. Again, it's the transition of wood to steel. The minute you put in a planning application for something new like that, you're having to satisfy a whole range of engineering considerations. And we know the National Park has been working on its own assets, say at Stanley Gill, that's a good example. You're going to start seeing more and more of this kind of work going on in the Lake District because of those pressures of numbers. Here, certainly climate change. The conditions are getting more extreme that we're working in. So you'll see more and more, but I think across the whole national park, I think we're starting to build, say, some experience working in these kind of materials in these kind of settings from one project to the next. So they're more sturdy, more robust, and yet aesthetically do not detract from the essence of the place. Well, we hope not. These gantry works are not designed to be the thing. They're designed to simply facilitate getting to the thing. You know, I think that's an important principle for us as far as we can, without them appearing too utilitarian equally. That's why, you know, as you see this, why would we build it in a sequence of straights? It's to give you slightly more of the rickety feel of something that's been kind of hand-bolted together. You did mention this is your favourite spot. Now, this is a, like a game of football, so it's got two sides. Which bank do you like best? I think I like this one. The visual build-up is really lovely here because you do see the quiet beck and you see it sort of change its character as you go up and you do get a more continuous experience of the river. So I think, yeah, I, I prefer this one, but I'll let visitors make up their own mind. It's been a great little expedition and uh, shortly we will come to the end of the woodland when we'll end the podcast, but just a little bit more to cover. We've come to the elbow tree, which is a striking feature as people are coming down this side of the pathway. We've come to the railings and we can look across Parkland and just see the very top of Leof's Tower, which is all private property, of course. You can see Bleabury Knot, Burke Fell and the lower part of Dodd, all part of Place Fell. And beyond that, you can see over Pike of Wazza. Pike of Wazza was the shepherd or the farmer, so the Wazza was his nickname, I assume. Beyond that is Low Pot Hill. To the left, you can see the Cairn on Hallin Fell, and overtopping that is Bonscale Pike. Well-known fell-walking territory, and I just see the lake. So much of this landscape has resonance with the National Trust, and they started acquiring land all over the place. But this is one of the early settings. Yeah, this is one of the really early big landscape acquisitions by the National Trust, 1906. So not long after the formation of the Trust as a landowning charity. I know it was a campaigning charity before that, but it's a very early one. As you mentioned, Lyle's Towers in private hands 
Now, at some point, the Howards decided to let go of Galborough Fell, and they retained the hunting lodge for themselves. Perhaps the pressure of tourism just overwhelmed the place, who knows? But it was acquired by the National Trust. I mean, this was a point in time when these big land acquisitions were being announced in Parliament. They really attracted a national response. But it's worth remembering the National Trust was a really small organisation then, just a few local committees, some of the important, well-to-do uh, local people um, and supporters, you know, a membership that could be listed in a handbook. So it's a small organisation. And one of the things that really interests me about the early days of the Trust in the Lakes is, is the scale of the acquisition. But there were no rangers, no staff. What was the plan? The Trust gained some of these tremendous landscapes, you know, for public benefit. Also to protect them. You know, the threat here, of course, was always in those days that this would be sold, bought up and used for building more villas. It was land development. So it's partly defensive and partly uh, for amenity. It's what was the plan? And in a sense, the Trust, it works very, very hard on these landscapes, but a big, big asset. We're still quite a small staff in the Lake District managing all of it. Very hard-working team here, Nick Fish and his team, the ranger, done a lot of work lately, actually, down in the Glade area, almost doubled the size of that, fighting his way through thorns and brambles and briars. You know, just the day-to-day of that landscape maintenance is, you know, is still quite a challenge. You had the story about Grasmere Island... Well, yeah, that comes to the issue of the National Trust being a land-owning charity. It started off as a campaigning organisation. Quite difficult to set yourself up as an organisation that would own land. And one of, the, one of the things that triggered it was Grasmere Island came up for sale, the famous Grasmere Island. Everybody knew it. It came up for sale and the Trust had no means to buy land to protect it. And in a sense, why would you necessarily want to protect Grasmere Island? But it was bought by a private individual. He then stuck a flagpole on it, put a fence around it, said, you know, private property and all those sorts of things. And Canon Ronsley wrote to him and said, would you please desist from doing that? And he wrote back kind of politely and said, well, if you wanted to control the island, why didn't you buy it? It's my property, thanks very much. Don't forget, it's not a national park. And that, in a way, is one of those prompts for the Trust to say, well, actually, if we do want to protect this land, we have to hold it. You don't say own it, we hold it for the benefit of the nation. And it triggered that beginnings of that land acquisition. And in a sense, culturally speaking, the whole country started to empty itself into the National Trust, a bit like an empty bucket. Stonehenge comes in and these great landscape assets. But it had to have a spark, you know, and that was one of the sparks that triggered that. So what does the future hold for the Air Force setting? The main thing we want to do, really, is to amplify the benefits of the whole of Galborough. We've actually started calling it, instead of just calling it Air Force, we now call it Air Force and Galborough Park. There's so much going for it. I think, it, in a sense, it fights with its famous identity. The falls are lovely, but it's not the only show in town here. Our big strategy, really, is to try and get people out and about around the whole of Galborough and enjoy its whole setting, uh, because it's got so much to offer. It's interesting that the summit of the fell is called Airy Crag, so it sort of naturally relates to Aeroforce. You know, historically, when the National Trust acquired that, it opened Aeroforce as a visitor attraction very, very early on. And I think then it separates itself out from its parent landscape, and its parent landscape is the Deer Park, Galborough Park, with all of that fantastic ancient history we talked about, as well as the, the more modern history. Well, before we sign off, Harvey... Have you got one tip for the nouveau visitor to Aeroforce? Think about the weather. Don't just come here in the summer. Come in the winter. Think about the romantic aspect of it. And also, you know, if if you're feeling up to it, bring your hiking boots and cover the whole of the fell. Very good. Well, I've loved it, but there again, I love Aeroforce setting and I love Gaubera Fell. In fact, walking the Ellswater Way is a, a treat, but this is very much a great focus. And what the Trust and yourself are doing here is exemplary. Thank you for your time, and I hope we'll meet you again on Country Stride. Journey's end, and we are back at the car park in Aeroforce after treading those exciting steps of the early tourists and learning a huge amount en route, Mark. I've learned a lot, and I'm sure a lot of our listeners will have got a bit more of a background on how this place evolved, which is critical, because we tend to think of it as a fait accompli now, a lovely little woodland walk to a beautiful waterfall, but it has a social background that um, isn't obvious 
and the Dukes of Norfolk played very much into it. And that story of land ownership, I think that's fascinating. Yeah, no, that was good. And actually, it's interesting to bring it right up to the current day and think a little bit about all those choices that go into a restoration project like the one with the gantries there. We'll finish with our housekeeping, Mark. We are on episode number... We're on episode 109. There we go, 109. So 108 previous episodes, www.countrystride.co.uk. The big news is there are still a handful of tickets left to Country Stride Live, our first in-person event, which is happening, Mark, on which date? Oh, it's on Saturday, the 11th of November. That's the day before, remember, it's Sunday. It should be a fascinating full day. It goes on into about 9 o'clock in the evening with music. So it's voices, walking and sound. Yes, all of those things and more. So to get tickets, www.countrystride.co.uk and it's happening in Ambleside. To support this podcast, you can buy any one of our guidebooks, including, of course, the Oldswater Way official guide and the Oldswater Walking Companion, which has a walk in error force, of course it does. Uh, You can get them at www.countrystride.co.uk. And one other thing to say about that in this setting, of course, Mark, is we give 50p for the sale of every book to local charities and in this valley context it's fixed the fells doing their work on galbarrow and we gave two and a half thousand pounds earlier this year for that work the fix the fells lads and lasses are doing sterling work restoring beautiful parts on galbarrow fell itself other ways to support us tell your lakes loving friends and family it's a bit of a tongue twister or indeed you can donate for as little as two pounds a month to us via patreon and you can find out how to do that at www.countrystride.co.uk you can join the happy throng of people who keep us afloat uh, which is all a lovely thing we've had a great day out haven't we absolutely uh, uh, we might now go to the tea shop cake i'll avoid today but i definitely yeah i'll avoid it i started today by going to the cathedral cafe in carlisle that satisfied that aspect today i'll have a cup of tea you've already had a cake okay well i'll eat yours there we go i actually had a, a crumpet Okay, well, on that note then, on that buttery note, we will end today's podcast and we will look forward to joining you again next time round when I hope we'll be talking about Eliza Lynn Linton.